As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. But to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself, for what he approves. 
Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Thanks, Rona. In church, is it okay to agree to disagree? To just put our differences aside and get on with it? I guess the answer, really, or the best answer, is it depends on what about. At various points in history, most of what we take of being uh, mainstream Christianity and mainstream Christian belief has been disagreed about. The Trinity, the Godhead of Jesus, the makeup of the Bible, salvation by faith alone. In New Testament times, there were disagreements about circumcision. All of these, at some point, have been disputed. But that doesn't mean that automatically that means that they're sort of disputable matters, that they're okay to disagree on as Christians. In the church at large, in the UK, there are churches that will deny still things like the physical resurrection of Jesus, or that Jesus is the only way to God, or that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. Just because people disagree about something doesn't mean that it's legit to disagree. Now, of course, when I say it's not legitimate to disagree, we always assume that well, there will be people uh, with us on a Sunday morning who do disagree. And there'll be people who disagree on the fundamentals of Christianity. What I mean by that is as we look at these issues, there are some things that we can't disagree on and still call ourselves Christians. But... Equally, there are things that we can disagree on and still call ourselves Christians. What have been traditionally called disputable matters. And that's really what our passage is about this morning. How do we get on when there are things that we disagree about? But to think that through, really, to start with this morning, we need to think, what is a disputable matter? What are those things that we can disagree on? So that's our first point. What is a disputable matter? Well, our passage gives us some brilliant examples of what this looks like, certainly in the first century as this was written uh, to the people there. The context in the passage is almost certainly the Jews and the non-Jews and sort of tensions between them in the church in Rome. Chapters 14 and 15 of Romans, in many ways parallel chapters 1 and 2, you may have missed it as we sort of zoomed past it uh, earlier, but it dealt with issues of the non-Jews and the Jews and their need for the gospel. While both now have responded to the gospel, 
But becoming a Christian doesn't mean that it erases all our cultural and moral baggage. Actually, we still carry that with us, don't we? Uh, as we become a Christian, we don't just sort of become a blank slate. So it seems that some of the Christians from a Jewish background were doing one thing, and Christians from a non-Jewish background were doing another. And Paul gives two examples in our passage, diet and diary. Many Jewish background Christians were avoiding certain foods and still keeping the Old Testament Sabbath. Whereas Gentile, non-Jewish Christians generally didn't have those scruples. They didn't find a problem with those things. It's not quite that simple. Some Gentiles possibly had scruples too, and they might have had feast days that they sort of kept. And I think that's probably why Paul keeps it in quite general terms, the weak and the strong. But notice that as he uses those terms, the weak and the strong, that they're not neutral. Okay? It's not like he's saying that actually they're both equal positions. Being weak is not good, is it? You don't generally think that's a good place to be. Being strong is what you want to be. And it's not that Paul is saying there's no right position on these issues that Christians are disagreeing on. Paul states it quite clearly in verse 14. Uh, So let me read that to you again. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So on the issue of food there, he he just states it straight out. Again, verse 20, uh, second half, everything is indeed clean. So it's not that he's saying there's no right position on these issues. Paul has a position on these issues. Mark writing to the Romans, probably about the same time, writing in Rome. Uh, writes a comment on what Jesus says in Mark 7, 19. You'll find it on the back of your notice sheets. Talking about what Jesus said. Thus he declares all foods clean. There's actually a right answer to this one. It's not a sort of, if you watch QI, that sort of nobody knows situation. And yet Paul doesn't focus on the issue, even though there's a right answer, but how the Christians treat one another when there's a disagreement. Paul is not scared of tackling issues when he needs to. If you read a book like Galatians, you were left in no doubt. In Galatians, people are trying to impose Old Testament rules on Christians, and Paul denounces them as believing another gospel altogether. But that's not what's going on here. So what is going on then? Well, it would seem here that a disputable matter is an issue where the clear central truths of the gospel are not at stake. An issue where the clear central truths of the gospel are not at stake. Where one might come to one opinion and another to another. Where one may have scruples over what counts as living for the gospel and someone might come to a different conclusion. Despite the the freedom that they could legitimately enjoy in Christ, some people are still not able to enjoy that freedom. But it's not as simple as just writing a list of, right, these are the issues that we can disagree on. It'd be lovely if it was, wouldn't it? But for example, in the Bible, circumcision in some of the churches in Galatia was a gospel issue. People were forcing people to be circumcised. People were saying that you needed to be circumcised to be saved. But elsewhere, it wasn't. So Paul circumcises Timothy before he takes him with him on the mission, so that he was able to mix with Jews. In different times and different places and different circumstances, different issues will come to the fore. And in different times and places, some of them will be gospel issues, and some of them won't, depending on what's happening with them. 
it's also worth looking at well as how we get to those conclusions. I'm far more comfortable with someone who arrives at their opinion through looking at the Bible and deciding that's what it teaches than when someone who doesn't look at the Bible or looks somewhere else and decides that actually they'd rather believe something else. Both of those people may come to the same conclusion, but how they get there matters. The other thing that complicates it is what's classed as a central or clear gospel issue. And you could go to two unhelpful extremes. Let me show you a diagram smart how my head works. That's not to do with my middle-aged spread, massive middle. Um, but the massive middle is, is the idea of, well, you make everything a gospel issue. So uh, secondary issues are treated as primary issues. Everything is treated as black and white. No other opinions are allowed on anything. And the, the stuff that you can disagree on is this sort of tiny, tiny area around the outside, like, you know, what colour you have, your drapes at home or something like that. Um, the other extreme we can go to is the shrunken centre. And that's where the gospel and living it out is, is stripped to the bare minimum. There are suddenly things that are up for grabs that should not be. And primary issues are treated as secondary issues. And nearly everything that we talk about is a sort of grey area. And both these positions can be destructive to a church. Where freedoms are restricted, or sin is tolerated in the name of unity. Where every opinion is just treated as heresy, or where heresy is treated as just a matter of opinion or interpretation. Neither of those places is a good place to be, is it? But again, fascinatingly, Paul spends very little time on the issues themselves, and nearly all his time on how they treat one another. And he sets out seven broad principles of how we're to treat one another as Christians. <coughs> so when we know that this is a disputable matter, when it's not a central gospel issue, there are seven principles that Paul lays out. And as much as you want to read these as other people should think these with you, actually you need to think, well actually, this is for you when you disagree with other people too, if you know what I mean. So we're going to look at them slightly out of passage order, but here we have the seven principles on how to treat one another when we disagree. So number one, don't look down on a brother or sister, that's in verses one to four. This is a word to the strong. So to those people who are exercising their freedoms and might be wondering, sort of looking around, why everyone else isn't. What Paul is saying is don't look down on people who are as strong as you. The word that's used there is despise. Do not despise them. It literally means to make someone or something nothing. To set them at naught. It's that sort of attitude that goes... They're nothing in my eyes. They're less than nothing. Can you believe them? Don't they know they're free to go to the cinema? Why on earth wouldn't they drink alcohol? How could they still act like they're in the Old Testament? Paul notes here that the danger is the strong could look down their noses at the weak. They spend their time despising them when they should be welcoming them, receiving them, accepting them. It doesn't mean they have to agree with them, but they should accept them as a brother or sister in Christ, not badmouth them behind their backs or constantly berate them with things. The positive word for how you are stronger to treat them is to welcome them. It literally means to take them to yourself, welcome them in, take them to heart. 
Don't send them away. Take them in. Don't look down on them. Look after them. So don't look down on a brother or sister. That's the first principle. Number two. Don't do something to make a brother or sister stumble. This is really verses 13 to 21. There's another danger for the strong. Putting a stumbling block in the way of the weak. Their behaviour, though not wrong in itself, could cause serious upset to another believer. In the case of this food issue, it would be that insensitive sort of flaunting their mutancy to those who are weaker brothers. Imagine if Rome, if after church, someone said, hey, let's all go around Aristobulus' house. Real guy in Rome, check it out later. Let's go to his house. And despite knowing the issues, Aristobulus decides to have a pork roast. That's what he's going to do, get you know, a big one in the back garden, extra lashings of bacon, venison sausages, you know, the full works. How do you think the weaker brothers or sisters would feel? Do you think they'd feel welcomed? At home? Loved? No, they're going to feel got out, aren't they? Ostracised, excluded. There's no acknowledgement in that, is there, of what Aristobulus, I'm not saying that he actually did this, but <laughs> someone like that, um, there's no acknowledgement of the fact that other people might have other opinions. And in fact, those weaker brothers or sisters may feel pressured to eat, even though their consciences are telling them that it's wrong. Or they might be tempted to think, well, wow, this is too hard. They might be tempted to give up on church and on Christ altogether. You know, well, at least in the synagogue, they at least attempt to follow the commandments of God. Clearly, the gospel isn't working because it's producing a bunch of people who are tempting me to disobey it all the time and getting at me. <coughs> Paul thinks there's a real possibility that this could cause them to stumble in their faith. In verses 20 and verse 15, he talks about it destroying the work of God, or destroying a brother for the sake of food. So Paul says, if it's going to destroy your brother and sister, better not to eat meat at all. Better to lay down your freedom for the sake of your brother. You don't have to believe it's wrong. Verse 16, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Bacon is good. It's not the kingdom of God. That's why he's saying. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit is way more important than those things, isn't it? Pork is great, but it's not worth destroying a brother or sister in Christ for it. And in different types and different places, there will be different issues. I'm not saying that we all need to go vegetarian. I'm not being sponsored by the vegetarian cafe in town, though I do drink a lot of coffee there. But there may be other areas that we need to think about where we need to lay down our rights, lay down our freedoms for the sake of our brother and sisters. Not because it's wrong, but because it's hurting them. So don't do something to make a brother or sister stumble, even if you're free to do it. Number three, don't pass judgment on a brother or sister. Really, we're looking at verses 10, and 10 to 12 here. Those other things were spoken to the, the stronger party. This is now spoken to the weaker party. And he says, don't pass judgment on a brother or sister. When they're doing things that you wouldn't, don't pass judgment on them. You are not their judge. God is. And if God has welcomed them, verse 3, who are you to not welcome them? 
They stand before God, not before you. It's to God that they give their account, not to you. I think, though, this is the trickiest of the principles that Paul lays down. Partly because very few people count themselves as the weak party. Actually, when we don't act in certain ways, it's normally because we believe to act otherwise would be sinful. Not always, but often. The difficulty here is that we're supposed to look out for each other. We are supposed to warn one another if we're falling into sin. We are supposed to point one another in the right direction when we're going wrong. But how do we know when it's just they're doing something wrong or whether it's they're doing something that they can legitimately do? Well, I think the thing that really helps with this command, when we see a brother or sister doing something or believing something that we don't, is to just ask one question. What has God actually said about this? What has God actually said about this? Is my view clear and unambiguous in Scripture? And with that then, have other good Bible-believing Christians come to a different opinion on this? That doesn't mean you have to give up your opinion. It doesn't mean you should have to say, oh no, I've got it wrong. But if it's something less clear... And if other Christians who love the Bible have come to a different opinion down through the ages, could it be there's a bit more wiggle room in those particular areas? And as we said before, how did they get there? Have they looked at the Bible? Do they know what it says? So is it a legitimate disagreement over what the Bible actually says? Or is it just ignoring the Bible and coming to a conclusion from elsewhere? If actually there is some wiggle room then this comes in. We need to not pass judgment on our brother and sister. Again, we don't have to agree with them, but we have to be generous with them. That's number three. Number four, be convinced in your own mind what you think. This is really verses five to nine. There's a reminder there that it's okay to come down on one side or another. The goal is not uniformity or some sort of non-essentials agnosticism where all of us go, oh, well, it doesn't matter and we don't know. Remember, Paul thinks there is a right opinion and a wrong opinion here, and he's told us so. He's not saying there's no answer, so don't bother trying to work it out. Actually, he says, work it out, come to an opinion in your own mind. But then be welcoming of people who come to another conclusion, knowing that actually they can honour God Two. I know there are a great many other godly, wonderful people who hold another position to me on other issues. I had listed a load of them in my original draft of this and then realised that, again, we wouldn't be here until this afternoon. But there are many places, aren't there, where other godly believers disagree with us. I don't think that they're right, but I get that you can read it in a different way. I get that these things are not central gospel issues. And I get that they get there reading the Bible. And Paul says here it's actually possible to serve and honour God with different positions. The one who eats honours God, the one who doesn't eat honours God. The one who eats gives thanks to God, the one who doesn't eat gives thanks to God. Actually it's our motivation there in those issues that counts. Are we doing this to honour God? We're his servant, not their servant in that sense. We stand before God. Now, you may not know many of my positions on secondary issues because of the next principle. 
Number five, don't bat on about it. That's my translation. Don't bat on about it. It says there, keep the faith that you have between you and God. Now the word faith there is probably better translated belief. The belief that you have, keep between yourself and God. If we've got a position on something like this, don't endlessly go on about it. It can turn a minor disagreement into a major dispute. It could make people who disagree feel very unwelcome. So you don't have to drop it into conversation, every conversation. You don't have to introduce yourself to new people leading with where you disagree with them. They say you should never ask an Englishman where he's from, because he's from Yorkshire, he'll already have told you. (laughs) And if he's from anywhere else, there's no point embarrassing him. (laughs) But that shouldn't be the case. You can drop him where you're from, but not your sort of secondary opinions. So I have a Christian friend who's an Arminian. In a nutshell, they believe that God has not chosen uh, individuals uh, undeservedly, but God has chosen people based on whether he knew they would have faith or not. You can Google it later if you've not heard that word before. It's more complicated than that, and there are variations, but let's go with that for now. Every time I met with him, though, that's all he wanted to talk about. Every conversation, he somehow dropped that into it. Every conversation turned into a debate, and it could get quite heated with this guy. He seemed to relish the opportunity to talk to someone who was undecided, and that he could get them on his side. To be even-handed here, I know that many Calvinist books and websites and blogs talk about the cage stage of Calvinism. Calvinism is the other side of the debate from Arminianism. They talk about the cage stage, that's when someone discovers the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism for the first time, and the idea is that you need to lock them in a cage for six months. Because they're so eager to go telling anybody who'll listen that you sort of need to hold them uh, back a bit, and they'll trample over people to convert them to their opinion. Just wanted to be even-handed with the two positions there. But whatever position you've got about secondary issues, you don't need to back on about them all the time. It can be very unhelpful. It takes small divisions and it cracks them wide open. It takes less important matters and makes them the main thing. Don't major on the minors, major on the majors. So if you find yourself talking about the same thing every conversation you have with another believer, and it's not the gospel, then chances are that's the minor that you keep batting on about. It's not wrong to talk about those things, but you're not to quarrel about them, verse 1. And you're not to make a mountain out of a molehill, a major out of a minor. Why not talk about something that will build up a person that you're talking to? Don't bat on about secondary issues. And that is our next principle about building them up. Aim for peace, harmony, and upbuilding. This really is uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. We're told there that Jesus, his aim was not to please himself, but to work for the good of others. No one could say that Christ was selfish. In fact, he laid down his very life on the cross in service to others. He died to love his neighbour, in effect, going with the flow of our passage. He bore the insults and the scorn of others to do us good, to rescue us, to build us up. He paid for our sin. And offers to take uh, offers to take us into his family. He died and rose for our sakes, for us. 
Paul wrote earlier in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If Christ died for us when we were weak, is it too much that we bear with the failings of the weak, as Paul tells us? If Christ died for our good, is it too much that we work towards the good of our brothers and sisters? That we seek to build them up rather than knock them down? That we seek to please our neighbour rather than destroy them? That we aim to praise our God with one voice rather than bickering or fighting? When we disagree, we need to be thinking, how can I work for the good of the other person? How can I work for the good of this person with whom I disagree? Not how can I knock their argument down. I tend to spend far more time thinking about knocking down arguments than building up people, but it needs to be the other way around. Last principle, go with your conscience. Go with your conscience. This is verses 14 and 23. Martin Luther said, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. That was the reformer Martin Luther. And that's what he said at the Diet of Worms when he was on trial for his beliefs. And he was right, wasn't he? It's not right or safe to go against conscience. In the end, if your conscience tells you that something is wrong, (coughs) don't do it. If something you do, if you do something believing it to be sinful, then it is sinful, says Paul. Whatever you want to stand on, you know, sort of outside of your experience, for you that is sinful. If it's not coming from faith, but from somewhere else, then it's wrong, says Paul. Paul's principle is go what you, with what you believe to be right. Never go against what you believe to be right, uh, believe to be wrong. Hang on. You know what I mean. <laughs> go with your conscience, says Paul. If you think it's wrong to eat something, don't eat it. If you think it's wrong to do something on a certain day, don't do it. Let faith be your guide to all your decisions. And be thinking, does my decision come out of a desire to trust God and honour him? Or is my decision coming from pressure from elsewhere? We need to go with our consciences. If we can't work out all the issues, we need to go with what we believe is right. Well, those are our seven principles. So is it okay to disagree? Well, on some issues, yes. But how we disagree matters. We can disagree in a way that honours God, and we can disagree in a way that doesn't honour God. It's up to us, whatever the issue, to love our brothers and sisters and build them up, not knock them down. And I pray that God would give us the wisdom to know the times that we need to stand firm, and the times where we need to let something go. So let's pray now to God for that wisdom. Let's pray. Father God, we know that this morning there's lots to think about. Uh, Father, there's lots that you've given us in this passage to chew over. Father, pray that you'd help us this week in our uh, interactions with other believers, Father, to think these things through. Father, pray that we would be welcoming where we should be welcoming. But Father, give us the courage where where things are right, Father, to speak. But Father, help us know when not to speak as well, Father, when to keep it to ourselves. Father, we know these are really tricky things, Father. We know that these things have split churches and done all sorts of things. So Father, give us great wisdom 
And Father, hold us together. Hold us in your hand together as a, as a church, as a fellowship. Father, that we might be united around the essentials. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.